heard once that the purpose of the pulpit was to hide the knocking knees of the preacher. Okay, can you see me over this? Not as tall as Jess. Okay, since I'm reasonably new to this church, I thought I'd give a brief overview of my personal and spiritual journey. Uh, I was raised on a farm in northeast Victoria with my five sisters. Yep, six of us, no brothers. I can't say when I became a Christian. I do not remember a time when I did not love God. He has always been part of my life. My parents were Christians and our lives revolved around the Wagarandal Methodist Church. Um, it's smaller than this. It was established as a Wesleyan Methodist Church in 1883. I was christened by a Presbyterian minister, dedicated by a Methodist minister, married in a uniting church, baptised by an AOG pastor, and my husband and children were baptised in the Church of Christ. I've also attended Christian Missionary Alliance and Brethren Churches. So in some ways I've come full circle. I'd like to point out here that we are not church hoppers. The, the change of churches has been, with one exception, due to moving cities. I met Brian at a youth camp in 1979 and we married in 1981. We have three children. Handsome looking lot, aren't they? <laughs> Adam is an accountant and married to Catherine, who is a doctor. They live in Dunedin in New Zealand. Marinda is a childcare worker and lives in Canberra. And her youngest, Cameron, is married to Keziah. They live in Gracemere. He's a metal fabricator and Keziah is a teacher. They have three children. Grace was born in 2015 but went to heaven when she was just 28 and a half hours old. They also have Jessica, who is four, and Andy, who is two. I've had many roles in the churches we have attended, including church secretary and lay preacher. In 1999 to 2004, we worked full-time for an organisation called Every Man's Welfare Service, which is a mission to the armed forces. Our role mainly involved managing a recreation centre, taking hot drinks and biscuits out to soldiers' outbush and baking thousands of Anzac biscuits. In 2005, we moved to Canberra so I could attend the Alliance Bible College where I got my diploma in theology. We then moved to Melbourne where I worked as a hostess at the headquarters of Wycliffe Bible Translators. In 2012, we moved back to Wodonga where I volunteered at the food share at our church and did some lay preaching. In 2021, we moved up here to be with our grandchildren, first to Yapoon, and then in January last year, we bought a house in Rockhampton. Anyway, that's enough all about me. Now I would like to take you back to around the year 850 BC. The location is the palace in Jerusalem and the king is Jehoshaphat. He was one of the good kings who followed the Lord and did his best to rest, rid the land of Asherah poles and other vile forms of worship. God had made him very successful, and Judah at that time was prosperous and mostly at peace. That was until some men came with a message 
that a vast army of Moabites and Ammonites were heading their way from the direction of Edom. They were currently at Angedi, which was only 70 kilometres away. Jehoshaphat was alarmed, but resolved to inquire of the Lord. He proclaimed a fast and gathered the people together to seek after God. God commanded him to send out his army early next morning, but not with his best fighters taking the lead, but the choir dressed in their holy robes. They sang and shouted, Give thanks to the Lord, his love endures forever. I think if I was going out to battle, I wanted to be armed with a bit more protection than my tambourine. It was an unusual tactic, but a successful one. 2 Chronicle 20 tells us that as they began to sing and praise, the Lord sent ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. The men of Ammon and Moab rose against rose up against the men for Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. After they had finished slaughtering the men from Mount Seir, they helped destroy each other. When the men of Judah came to the place that overlooks the desert and looked toward the vast army, they only saw dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. Just as the Levite Jehaziel had promised, the Lord had won their battle without them having to lift a finger. So why had this surprising strategy worked? It worked because Jehoshaphat knew an important spiritual law. Worship is warfare, not always in the physical sense, but certainly in the spiritual realm. So what is worship and how does it differ from praise? Selwyn Hughes in his book Seven Spiritual Laws says praise is appreciating God for what he does. Worship is adoring him for who he is. Worship is not just praising God but being in awe of him, adoring him, not for what he gives but who he is. Strictly speaking, in worship there is no prayer or intercession. It is gazing on God in love and adoring him just for himself. While worship is most often associated with religion, it can be found in the lives of secularists, agnostics and even atheists. The simple truth is that everybody looks to something or someone to give their lives meaning. Worship reveals the people or things we value the most. We may pour our time and energy into things that we feel bring us power, approval, success, control or happiness. We may not consider these things acts of worship, but they are. In Matthew 4, Jesus commanded that we must worship God and him only. In fact, scripture fairly bulges with the truth that God is to be the first and only object of our worship. From Genesis, where Abraham went to a mountain to worship God with Isaac, to Revelation, where the 24 elders fall down and worship God, crying, Amen and Hallelujah. The emphasis cannot be missed. True worship is not going to church on Sunday, volunteering for church events, or going to Bible study. True worship is not even the singing of songs in a service although it may involve all these things. 
True worship of God happens when we put first God first in our lives, when what God matters more than what others say, and when loving God matters more than being loved. Discipline, willpower, giftedness and going to church can be good things, but unless God is first in all these things and because God is love, then they are nothing but a noisy gong or clanging bell. But why does God command us to worship him? Is he some sort of megalomaniac like Colonel, my people love me, Gaddafi, or King Jum, love me or I'll shoot you, ill? Does God need his ego pumped by us telling him how great he is? Not at all. If that's what he needed, then Revelation 5.11 tells us that there are at least 100 million angels encircling the throne crying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. C.S. Lewis says if such an absurd deity could be conceived, he would hardly come to us, the lowest of rational creatures, to satisfy his appetite. No, that scenario is a long way from the truth. We need to worship him, not for his benefit, but for ours, because we need to recognise and know who God is. Millard Erickson points out that although worship emphasises God, it is intended to benefit the worshippers. Our spirit needs to recognise God's holiness, character and glory. Worship of God keeps our focus on, in the right place. If we put service or anything else first, we can end up self-focused. C.S. Lewis also says, It is in the process of being worshipped that God communicates his presence to men. In worship, we maintain a correct perspective of God and ourselves. It also engages our faith. In the story of Jehoshaphat that I spoke about before, is that, <clears throat> that the ambushes only started in the invading army after the choir went out ahead and began praising God. What God gets from our worship is not an inflation of his ego, but the pleasure of his children growing in their knowledge of him and increasing in the likeness of his son. Or as Bert put it a couple of weeks ago, it plugs us into God. It feeds that white dog that he mentioned and enables us to win the fight. We are designed to worship. Anthropologists have yet to discover any people who lack a sense of awe before the supernatural. Luther asserted that human beings must have a god or idol. If you don't believe me, have you ever seen the news footage of the Elvis Festival in Parks? Thousands of people travel to central New South Wales in the middle of summer when it is stinking hot, dressed in white jumpsuits and black wigs. They spend an absolute fortune to look like Elvis, sound like Elvis and collect all sorts of memorabilia. Some have even had cosmetic surgery to achieve the Elvis look. If that is not worship, I don't know what is. I can't help thinking when I see these things that these people are just desperately trying to fill a God-sized hole in their life. Yes, we are designed to worship, but it is a holy and awesome God that we must worship 
not a singer, actor, athlete or even fellow Christian. I remember as a teenager, my mother, grandmother gave me a book about someone who started one of the major charities in Australia. I must admit I had him on somewhat of a pedestal. When I was a young mother, he came to speak at a meeting in Benalla, near where I lived. Brian was busy that night, so I went with my mum and I took Adam, who was just over two, and Marinda, who was 11 months old. As the meeting started, Marinda was asleep in her pram and Adam had laid down across my lap. The speaker said a short prayer and then asked for a collection to be taken. As the collection was taken up, an elder of the church came up to me and said, the speaker was very annoyed that I had brought my children. Could I please go to the back of the hall or preferably leave? Fortunately, someone who lived nearby took pity and took me into their house where mum picked me up from, from later. Needless to say, his pedestal crumbled to a pile of dust. People will let us down, but God will not. Worship must be the number one priority in our life. In our busy worlds, it's easy to lose the important in the tyranny of the urgent. But we must learn to differentiate between the urgent and the important and make the adoration and worship of our God our life's priority. Nowhere is this better illustrated than in the story of Martha and Mary. Martha was caught up in the busyness of life, but Jesus pointed out that Mary had chosen what is better. There will always be stuff to do, but we must remain focused. Satan will fight you on your time with God more than anything else. He will do his best to make you think that your circumstances mean that God doesn't love you or he's forgotten about you and left you parked on the shelf, that he is not good or a thousand other lies. I've heard it said that when we don't understand his hand, we can always trust his face. We must be constantly reminding ourselves of the truth about God's character. Selwyn Hughes says Romans 12.1 reminds us that we do worship God when we offer him our bodies for his service. So we can worship while we work, but it is necessary to develop an attitude of the soul, a holy sense of awe as we live and move and have our being in God. Unless there is in the soul an atmosphere of devotion, then our work, however spiritual it might appear, is not an act of worship. Worship must be never be associated with our circumstances. When Job was told that he had just lost everything, he fell down on the ground and worshipped God. I'm sure we've had <clears throat> all had times when you wish a building would fall down on our kids or our workplace would be taken away. But most of the time we are grateful for these things and worship is easy. But we, like Job, should worship God even in the darkest days. Worship is not always easy. Hebrews 13.15 talks about it being a sacrifice. But it is amazing how much putting on some praise music can turn your day around. 
Joyce Meyer says, when you begin to substitute praise for petition and worship for worry, God will move on your behalf. Like Jehoshaphat, we have to remember that the battles we face are not ours, but the Lord's. We must we believe in a good God and we must trust that he is good even when we can't see it. C.H. Spurgeon wrote, For the beloved of God, ill to him is no ill at all, but only good in a mysterious form. It was Oswald Chambers who said, The root of sin is the suspicion that God is not good. If we carry in our hearts any doubts about the goodness of God and allow these doubts to grow, then we will be unable to worship. Doubts will come, but we must wrestle through them and come back to the conclusion that God is good. When God was giving Moses the law, he especially wanted the Israelites to know he was not fickle like the other gods or fallible like human beings. Numbers 23.19 says, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfil? These are, of course, rhetorical questions. The obvious answer is no. Hebrews says, our God is the same yesterday, today and forever. James says, the Father does not change like shifting shadows. We must worship God, whatever is going on, because worship is, like I said before, adoring God for who he is, not what he does. We can worship him because we know our God is solid, faithful and reliable. Bruce Milne says, to believe in such a God means to recognise and worship as the triune God, Father, Son and Spirit eternally and indivisibly united, perfectly related, each existing and operating in perfect unity. It means recognising and worshipping him in indescribable richness and of his Godhead, besides which no other truth systems, all other truth systems are but pale ephemeral shadows. This message is not meant to make you feel guilty about not worshipping God enough. I don't think such a state exists. After all, angels have been worshipping God since time began and will continue so into eternity. If that were the case, I would be condemning myself most of all. I have a long way to go to reach the character of Job and react to bad situations with immediate worship. Sometimes when we hear sermons on prayer and other things, we resolve that we will try harder to pray more or whatever. This will only result in failure. Instead, I think the approach must be to humbly come before God and ask him to teach us an attitude of worship. This could be risky. We may not like the methods he uses to teach us. But as Laura Story says in her song Blessings, What if the trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? We must, as Hebrews 10.23 tells us, hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Adele Cahoon says the heart of worship 
is to seek to know and love God in our own unique way. Each of us fulfills some part of the divine image. Each one loves us and glorifies God in a particular way that no one else can. One style of worship is not better than another. The quality of worship emerges from the heart and its focus. Whether it is by studying the word, admiring nature, through music or one of the other arts, it doesn't matter. Work with God and find your own way. If I tried to list all the reasons and the characteristics of God for which he is worthy of worship, we would be here for a very long time. Words seem to be woefully inadequate to express what we should, but this should not prevent us from trying. By putting God in his rightful place in worship, we can recharge our body, soul and spirit. Then we can face, with his strength, anything this year may bring. (laughs) 